This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So good morning. So nice to see so many of you here, yeah. Today it is my intention to talk about the elephant in the room uh, directly. And I guess when I say that, uh, there's feels like there's multiple elephants in the, in the room of our lives. But if we could maybe consider uh, all of these elephants as one elephant. So actually, first of all, I'm just curious if there are anybody, uh, new folks here, maybe for the first time or um, first or second time. Okay. Mostly regulars, mostly the usual folks here. So we've been, you know, living in a um, quite a changed world for at least nine months now, um, depending on what you consider the, the main elephants. And I think today I want to talk about how to turn towards this uncertainty as our practice as actually the perfect moment to, to practice. So yeah, for, for nine lives, nine months, our, our lives have been, um, you know, greatly changed and we're all still kind of adapting and reeling. And I think for me, what's maybe most groundless is that there isn't an end in sight. We don't know when our lives will return to some normalcy, and I don't think they'll ever be completely the same. And yet, you know, what we're presented with um, is kind of the basis of the first noble truth of Buddhism. So we have this practice and this tradition that gives us all kinds of insight and tools into what it means to be a human being uh, living in uncertainty. So I think the two main aspects that I want to kind of address today in, in practicing with this uncertainty is one, you know, remembering to um, consciously come back to ourselves in some kind of calming and reassurance for ourselves, maybe an acknowledgement of the upheaval that we feel. And I think sometimes, you know, when we, when we learn of the Bodhisattva ideal and embrace it, you know, we, we, we see the kind of benefit of spending our life energy to be available to all beings, to, to listen to all beings, to be a part of something with all beings. You know, um, it's beautiful. And yet I think sometimes, you know, learning this and, and embracing this feels at odds with turning towards ourselves, you know, comforting ourselves, reassuring ourselves. And I want to, you know, to whatever ability I can, um, maybe shake this notion a little bit. So I think there's something, when we talk about uh, all beings, of course, you know, one of the beings of all beings is this one right here. And I think our ability to be present for other beings has something to do with our ability to be present for just this being. And actually, sometimes that's the hardest uh, 
uh, one to be present for. So that's one aspect of kind of maybe pandemic practice or practicing in great uncertainty. And then the second is, you know, a turning towards and embracing challenge, difficulty as the kind of ground of our life, as the nourishment of our life, as something that turns and matures and develops whatever it is that we are. And I think that turning towards often feels counterintuitive. And so we have to be reminded again and again of its value. You know, of course, our first instinct in suffering or pain is to try and get away, to try and distract. And I think one thing that practice can help us with is to see through the, um, or to see clearly how that doesn't actually work for us, or at least doesn't always work. It's not something we can truly rely on. But this turning towards or embracing the difficult circumstances of our life has some inexplicable magic to it. And we just have to sort of try. We have to set an intention to see what would that be like if I stopped running away, if I made myself available to the difficulty and the uncertainty that I feel. So kind of in line with the first point about this finding grounding in our own kind of experience, I want to do a short guided exercise. So if you're willing to join me, maybe take a moment to um, kind of rock or move your body, find some place of sitting that feels comfortable. Maybe roll your shoulders a little bit. And maybe let's take three deep breaths together and you can really accentuate the out breath. There's a kind of sigh or moan almost like. So breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in. (sighs) Breathing out. And then just kind of gently notice how that changes our experience, our experience of our own body and mind. Don't have to name it or label it, just sort of be with it. And then gradually, um, if you would, bring your attention to your own breathing. You know, whatever that means in your experience. could kind of be anywhere in your body, but just noticing when this body is breathing in and when this body is breathing out. 
you know, noticing but not trying to get in the way, allowing it to just be as it is. You know, how is our breathing today? How does it feel to be a breathing body right now? And then I'll offer just a really simple breathing exercise. Feel free to try it on or not. But it goes something like this, breathing in, I calm this body and mind. Breathing out, I smile. Breathing in, I calm this body and mind. Breathing out, I smile. And after a few breaths, there can be kind of a shorthand, you know, maybe just the word as we breathe in calming. And the, and the word, as we breathe out, smile. And I think like any directed conscious practice like this, the phrases are a kind of offering or a question even. It's not that I'm trying to impose calmness or demand calmness. It's not that I'm trying to impose a smile or demand a smile. It's more like a question, like breathing in, calming. Breathing out, is a smile available? So we'll just stay with this for just a minute or two. Thank you for being willing to uh, try that. And I'm curious if there's any, um, you know, thoughts or responses that just arise from, from trying that practice. And feel free to, you know, raise your hand or unmute yourself if you'd like to share. Okay, we don't have to chat about it. We can move on. Well, I'll I'll say, Tim, it, 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 I just find it very pleasant to do that. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing how something so simple can sort of change. How my both my body and my my mind can can change. 
Yes, yes, thank you. Um, and, you know, I think there's so many unpleasant um, stimulus in our world and in our, you know, in our lives that it's kind of helpful to consciously plant pleasant stimulus in our lives as a kind of balance, as a reminder that um, all of this is, is our life, not just the unpleasant not just the suffering. Yeah, Mary. Yes. Um, one of the things that came up actually during last week's um, wake-up discussion was how do we deal with our distressing emotions in these times? And we had different points of view, but one of the, how do we engage in self-care and with tenderness was part of that discussion. And, you know, that, that idea seems to arouse, as you were talking about earlier, this sense that that self, self-indulgent, that feelings aren't real or relevant, but that's, that is so much a part of, our, of who we are to cut that off, to separate ourselves from our own suffering makes us so in, unable to be available to other people's suffering. <laughs> You know, so this, the practice that you just gave us is this lovely way of tenderly turning towards and being compassionate towards the self so that we can be able to integrate all of our experience, all, all of this challenge that we're, with, that we're facing. And, it, and it's so simple, but yet it's so profound. So anyway, I, I just thank you for that. It, it connects with thing that we were really working through as a group. Yeah, cool. I'm glad to hear that came up last week. Um, I was sort of down sick for a few days with a fever, um, and I did get COVID tested, and I'm, I'm negative. But um, I'm glad that that came up in the group uh, while I wasn't there. And I like what you said about it being actually a natural um, aspect of our life and to um, it's again it's not an imposition of a smile or tenderness you know um, tenderness and a smile are part of this whole constellation of experiences in our life Um, and especially when one aspect of our life is knocking so hard you know the the kind of tension and stress and cries of suffering that sometimes balanced practice, you know, asks us to to kind of remember the other parts of this wholeness of our experience. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Hey, Tim, I'd also like to offer that um, by prefacing a smile, so a smile has been a pretty foreign thing, at least for me, (laughs) lately. Uh, although here I am smiling, so thank you. Um, uh, but prefacing the suggestion to smile with, I calm this body and mind, made the smile an open, somehow open and honest smile for me. Um, 
And there would, there's, it's like a new pathway or a, a pathway that I maybe haven't accessed a lot recently into what does a smile feel like? Why might you do it? How might it arise? Um, and with that preface really was this new pathway to that. So, so thank you for that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, David. Yeah, Anne. So I first learned this practice. Um, I don't know if it's called a half smile. It seems like Thich Nhat Hanh. Does he? Yeah. So I remember the first time I read this and maybe a book or article by him. And I thought, oh, come on, this is so naive. But then I remembered he sat through bombing in Vietnam. And so he actually is very informed when he teaches this, that he's been through all the bad stuff and has learned a lot. And this practice is actually helpful. And just physiologically, when your lips turn up just a little bit, you do feel better. So I've used this practice before and it has been helpful. And I don't think it's naive. I initially thought that, but actually I, there's, there's truth to it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that because I, I had the same initial response um, to a lot of Technathan's practices. Um, this seems sort of silly and naive, yeah. Um, and that's not my, my feeling anymore as well. <clears throat> well, you know, I, I want to acknowledge also, you know, I think, you know, some of the responses that I'm hearing express a kind of a touching in to this practice, or maybe the feeling of a hint of a smile. But I want to acknowledge that even in this practice, sometimes it's not there, sometimes it's not available. Sometimes our life is so tight that, um, you know, and then the practice can be a kind of acknowledgement of that, you know. Oh, I notice when I ask myself to smile that it's not here. Okay, you know. And maybe that can actually open up some tenderness for myself, for my own experience. Like, wow, I'm, I'm nowhere close to a smile right now. Oh, that's hard, you know, to have some, um, yeah, softening towards our, our own experience, especially when we're suffering. So this second part that I wanted to talk about is um, this turning towards and transforming our suffering. Um, and uh, Pema Chodron, uh, in a you know wonderful book called "When Things Fall Apart." So this is heart, advi- heart advice for difficult times. Probably a great book to read again now. I haven't read it in a long time, but um, in a chapter towards the end called Three Methods for Working with Chaos, um, <clears throat> her, her three methods, or she, I'll, just, I'll just read what she says. She says, times are difficult globally. Let's see, when did she, when did she write this? 1997, so how much things change and don't change. Um, Times are difficult globally. Awakening is no longer a luxury or an ideal. It's becoming critical. 
We don't need to add more depression, more discouragement, or more anger to what's already here. It's becoming essential that we learn how to relate sanely with difficult times. The earth seems to be beseeching us to connect with joy and discover our innermost essence, innermost essence. This is the best way that we can benefit others. So she makes this connection. There are three traditional methods for relating directly with difficult circumstances as a path of awakening and joy. The first method we'll call no more struggle. So this is just an acceptance of our reality. Like I'm gonna stop fighting with, no, I don't want there to be a pandemic. No, I don't wanna be separated from my friends and family or other people in general. I mean, um, so the first method we'll call no more struggle. The second, using poison as medicine. So this is that turning towards um, how does our difficulty become what we need in some way to awaken. <clears throat> and the third, seeing whatever arises as enlightened wisdom. These are three techniques for working with chaos, difficulties, and unwanted events in our daily lives. So again, you know, when I first was introduced to this idea in Buddhist practice, it felt deeply counterintuitive. Um, you know, you want me to um, really acknowledge and allow the, the felt sense of my pain, of, of the suffering that I'm experiencing. Wow, that sounds almost impossible. And I think we don't, you know, I don't know how to describe the magic of what is possible in, in uh, facing and allowing and accepting the reality of our lives. I think it's just something we have to, um, you know, have some openness to and some curiosity about enough to open the door and attempt it, you know, and, and learning about meditation and zazen and posture and beginning to, um, in a way, discipline our, our physical energy into sitting still and upright and alert is a great support to this inquiry. It's uh, maybe a lot, more accessible to, to be with my own suffering in this posture. You know, ultimately, practice is about um, mindfully accepting and uh, um, being present for whatever is happening in all states, you know, standing, walking, lying down. But I think for most of us, it's helpful to start with sitting because this, you know, structure of our being um, that's both kind of restful, you know, we're, we're sitting down um, and yet um, strong or, 
Yeah, it's like a scaffolding of um, support that allows this kind of inquiry to happen for us. But I guess I want to say that a lot of this inquiry, again, happens right here. You know, we want to influence the world. We want to influence other people. Um, we want to make circumstances better. And there are opportunities to do that or to watch ourselves do that and see how it goes, you know, and learn from that. But, you know, to truly encounter suffering, it's mostly where we can notice it, which is right here in our own experience. So um, there's a, a Zen story. This is from the um, Book of Serenity, case 12, Dijong planting the fields. So Dijong asked Shui, Shushan, Dizong asked Shushan, where do you come from? Shushan said, from the south. Dijong said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Shushan said, there is extensive discussion. Dijong said, how can, we, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat. Shuishan said, what can you do about the world? Dijang said, what do you call the world? So among other things, this seems like a discussion about you know, where reality is, where our experience takes place. You know, is it out there? Is it in the South? Is that the world? Or is it somehow uh, right here in this simple activity um, of my life? Um, is that also the world? Where do you come from, from the South? How is Buddhism in the South these days? There is extensive discussion. So we love to talk about our experience, <laughs> um, both internally and externally, you know, um, talk with others, discuss with others the affairs of the world. And then of course there's some dialogue inside of Discussion. There's extensive discussion about my life, about my every kind of movement. So I think Dijon's trying to point to something beyond this extensive discussion. So he says, how can that compare to me here, planting the fields and making rice to eat? What can you do about the world? You know, isn't that self-involved? Isn't that, a, you know, self-absorbed to just to plant the fields and not get involved in the discussion, you know? And of course, the turning phrase is, 
what do you call the world? Where is the world? So in Pema Chodron's three methods for working with chaos, her second one again is uh, using poison as medicine. And in this work, she largely um, corresponds that with Tonglen practice. So when we notice suffering, our, our own and others, you know, to, to turn our usual way. You know, again, this is this counterintuitive move to go from um, running away or denying or hiding from to breathing that in, breathing in this difficulty that I feel or notice or hear or see, and then breathing out this kind of spacious um, acceptance. She says, we breathe it in for everybody. This poison is not just our personal misfortune, our fault, our blemish, our shame. It's part of the human condition. It's our kinship with all living things, the material we need in order to understand what it's like to stand in another person's shoes. Instead of pushing it away or running from it, we breathe in and connect, connect with it fully. We do this with the wish that all of us could be free of suffering. Then we breathe out, sending out a sense of big space, a sense of ventilation or freshness. We do this with the wish that all of us could relax and experience the innermost essence of our mind. So again, you know, exactly how we do this or what it looks like, you know, I can't say. But I think it starts with a willingness. And sometimes that willingness is created by our suffering. You know, if things are going along okay, um, why would we turn towards suffering, you know? But if suffering is here and present in our life, and we can't get away, and we notice that we can't get away. You know, I've tried all the things. Um, I've eaten lots of ice cream, you know. Um, I've had, you know, more cocktails than usual. Um, I've watched everything that Netflix has come out with, <clears throat> and still the suffering is right here. You know, sometimes that persistence of our suffering is what kind of opens the willingness. Okay, I guess I don't have a choice, you know. Let's see how that might work out. So I think it's about a willingness, but also a, um, a kind of commitment to being just here, you know, um, in this world, meaning the world of my everyday activity. And I think I'll, I'll just close with a, um, a passage from one of my favorite um, 
Zen ancestors, um, Hong Zhu, who was, um, I think, a great grandfather to to Dogen. Um, anyway, he was previous to Dogen in our lineage. Um, but he has these amazing. So the the book is called "Cultivating the Empty Field," which is a translation by uh, Taigen Dan Leighton. But Hong Zhu has um, this beautiful poetic way of describing this commitment to coming back and being just with this thing here, this experience. And where I say I can't describe the, the mystery or the, the magic of that, sometimes I think he can. So this is called Gates, the Gates Sparkling at the Source. All Buddhas and every ancestor without exception testify that they all arrive at this refuge where the three times, past, present, and future, uh, three times cause and the 10,000 changes are silenced. Straight ahead, unopposed by the smallest atom, the inherently illuminated Buddha spirit subtly penetrates the original source. When recognized and realized exhaustively, this spirit shares itself and responds to situations. The gates sparkle and all beings behold the gleaming. Then they understand that from within this place, fulfilled self flows out. The hundreds of grass tips all around never are imposed as my causes and conditioning. The whole body from head to foot proceeds smoothly. So when recognized and realized exhaustive, exhaustively, this spirit shares itself and responds to the situation. So this is that that movement of chi, you know, this is that flow that if we come back to this experience, to this source, to awareness of just this, that that then flows out uh, and pervades the world. And perhaps this is how we save all beings, how we act as bodhisattvas. So it's, it's not always a, a kind of conscious like going out to do this for them, but a returning to some source that flows out and benefits us all. Then they understand that from within this place, fulfilled self flows out. So um, one last time, the whole paragraph he says, all Buddhas and every ancestor without exception testify that they all arrive at this refuge where the three times past, present and future cease and the 10,000 changes are silenced. Straight ahead, unopposed by the smallest atom, the inherently illuminated Buddha spirit subtly penetrates the original source. When recognized and realized exhaustively, this spirit shares itself and responds to situations. The gates sparkle 
and all beings behold the gleaming. Then they understand that from within this place, fulfilled self flows out. The hundreds of grass tips all around never are imposed as my causes and conditioning. The whole body from head to foot proceeds smoothly. So thank you so much uh, for your kind attention and, and being here today. So I guess I'd like to open it for at least a few minutes to any um, questions or comments that, that people have. Tim, I, I, I often wonder about, and, and you address this, and I would say I'm still trying to understand, um, but the accepting and coming back to ourselves in, how does that play with um, the need to be active and to change things? I think there's maybe a question about action versus passivity for me, that, that I just, I often, come to that i often land in that space what is am i am i to be passive am i to be active if i'm being active am i engaging my will and, and my small mind as we talked about two weeks ago um, if i'm being passive am i automatically engaging my big mind i don't know i don't know that that's that's what it is but um this is just someplace i often end up yeah thanks for sharing that you know i think it's something we all wrestle with in practice i think the first thing i would say is that coming back to just this experience right here doesn't feel passive to me it can be a you know a tremendously almost overwhelmingly active experience but is that acting in the world? Is that benefiting beings? You know, that's a great question to, to hold in your, your own practice. You know, I think, you know, I keep mentioning the sort of counterintuitiveness. It feels like a jujitsu move to me that um, oftentimes when I'm out in the world trying to be active and influence other people and support the things that I want to see in the world, especially if that's not grounded in something deeper, it can be pretty dispiriting. Like I don't feel like I actually have much power to change things in the world as an individual person. And, and it can be, um, you know, greatly connecting and, you know, a wonderful use of our time and energy. But the jujitsu move is that somehow, like, if I come back here fully, that something about the grounding of just this flows out. There's a kind of like call and response that's beyond my kind of doing it. And, you know, maybe just inquire into the kind of activity that comes out of coming back and being still and flowing out, you know, 
and how that influences, you know, how you notice. I mean, there's lots of influences in the world uh, of self and other that are kind of too subtle for us to even notice. But in the ways that we notice, you know, how does that work out? And then if it's not grounded in some, you know, presence with my own experience and I'm just out there acting in the world, you know, how does that work out? You know? So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of conundrum that we all practice with, I think. And thank you for speaking it so clearly. Um, and, you know, I wish you the best of luck to continue to, to, to practice with that. Thank you, Tim. That was, was really beautiful. It gives me a lot, I feel like, to work on with. And I was just wondering, it seems like some of it to, to Dave's question, which I think is, is key. I think I, I struggle with that one a lot between, you know, in with practice and being centered can spontaneous action flow out. Um, and sometimes I have to try things out, mm-hmm. you know, um, and recently in a difficult conversation, I responded in a way that I think was spontaneous and heartfelt and kind of came forward and, and it was angry. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought afterwards, Hmm, so how did that go? (laughs) Um, So, so can I maybe still take some breaths, be more internally in my space? Um, and then still have some spontaneity and, and, and heartfelt nature. And um, maybe I don't get it right, but, um, but I can at least start to work with that in, in a more conscious way and find out. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I, um, I, do, I do think that what can spontaneously flow out can be all kinds of things, including anger. There is appropriate anger. Um, it's very tricky. You know, anger has lots of inappropriate results and, and um, can be quite, anger is like setting a field on fire. It's a blunt instrument. Like you might, you know, hit the thing in front of you, but you might also wipe out a whole town behind it. Um, <clears throat> But there can be appropriate anger for sure. And um, I, I think that this was a helpful question in the sense that, you know, I brought up this conscious exercise of calming. But I don't think that, you know, calming is the ultimate goal here. You know, I don't think that if we sit quietly and we return to just where we are, that calmness is or should should be the result of that at all times hopefully wisdom is but but not necessarily calmness um but yeah also i like your your point about experimentation so i think how we practice how we learn um you know how we affect the world and how the world affects us is by testing it i think there's no other way um, and I know a number of people, interestingly, that during this pandemic shutdown, during isolation, 
who have suddenly made really big life changes. A member of our Sangha, who I won't name because I don't know if it's you know, totally public, but has decided to, you know, um, move closer to family, you know, and move away from Austin. My own, I've watched my own mother go through a process of kind of deliberating about whether she needed to make a move. And at some point it clicked and she's going with it, you know, and she, you know, found a new place to live in the place where she wants to move. And she's in the process of selling the home where she was living. And, and are those actions, you know, the fruits of wisdom? You know, mostly we don't know until we, until we do it. So that the experimentation helps us learn about where our, our own motivations are coming from. And then the third thing I would say that was helpful in your comment is, is the kind of the recollecting, the reviewing, like how did that go? You know, like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm being grounded and mindful and what comes out is anger. Um, you know, but after, after it's passed, you know, and things have calmed down and I look back, like, was I as grounded and mindful as I thought? Maybe so, you know, and maybe that, that affirms the kind of righteousness of our anger, or maybe I start to see it differently. You know? So I think that recollection of our sort of near, near immediate experience, like sort of just after something happens, helps us integrate, you know, our, this interaction between us and the world. Or this world and that world. <laughs> Any last um, thoughts or comments? Okay, well, thanks again for, for all being here today. And um, I wish you, you know, the best of luck with this practice. <laughs>